This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierrosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. In the passage we'll be studying today from chapter 12, we'll meet a group of people totally devoted to their religion, a religion based on God's law, but contaminated by human elaborations. Sadly, these very religious people were experts at their list of rules, but totally disinterested in human life and human suffering. The challenge for us is to remember that God has a matchless sense of compassion for humanity, a compassion that caused him to act on our behalf. Our response, as followers of Christ, should be to demonstrate that same level of compassion. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew 12, verses 9 through 21. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory." And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So, church, when we read this interaction, the following question emerges. When is the right time to demonstrate Christ-like kindness? Because that is the question in challenge form that the foes of Christ presented to him because they were so focused on a tradition that they created, a tradition that had nothing to do with the law of God. So in order to answer that question, let's first of all, following the format of the text, you look at the analysis of human hypocrisy. Verses 9 through 10, because that's what stands in the way here, human hypocrisy. Now, the Pharisaical tradition only permitted healings on the Sabbath if they were life-threatening. If it was not life-threatening, it could be postponed until the next day. Again, that is not in Scripture. That is a Pharisaical addition to that. And obviously, they didn't account for the fact that Jesus was a miracle worker. In His sovereignty, God placed that man in that synagogue on that day to demonstrate Christ's kindness contrasted with human hypocrisy. And according to Matthew, the Pharisees now ask Jesus a question. Again, not because they want to learn from him, but because they want to challenge him. They want to accuse him of breaking a silly and an unbiblical tradition. For them, the unredeemable sin. You violated our tradition. You violated the Sabbath. Their heart is so out of alignment with the heart of God that Jesus had to respond, that Jesus had to intervene. Now, there are many times where Christ simply walked away, but in this case, it was necessary for Jesus Christ to clarify with a visual 
illustration to demonstrate to these people that were so religious and yet their heart was so out of alignment with the heart of God. Christ's critics treated that man's predicament as no more than a matter of legality. They did not care that that man was in need and it was in need of a healing touch from Christ. To them, that man was an opportunity for them to trap Jesus in his own words. In church, that is a common feature of religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy always places tradition before tenderness and elevates ritual over relationship, liturgy over liberty, compliance over compassion, ceremony over conversion. These unbiblical systems seek to make devotees rather than disciples of Christ. And that is the problem here that Scripture raises for us. People like that, that are so caught up in tradition, in what's legal according to our religious system, they miss the grace of God. They miss compassion. Now, they need our prayers. They're not our enemies. They, they may be foes of Christ, but they are our mission field. So we need to pray for them. We need to reach out to them with the grace of God and demonstrate kindness to them. So keep in mind, we're trying to answer the question, when is it time to demonstrate Christ-like compassion, Christ-like kindness? After looking at the analysis of human hypocrisy here, according to the format of the text, I want you to see the application of divine mercy, verses 11 through 14, because that's what Matthew is doing here for us. He's demonstrating how divine mercy is applied in a very tangible sense here. Members of the heavenly kingdom, those of us who are born-again believers in Christ, we should be known for our kindness. We should be known for a high view of human life because that's where the heart of God is, because that's God's perspective, which results in the application of divine mercy. Remember beatitude number five, Matthew 5 verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Remember that beatitude says we are blessed because we are part of the kingdom and because we're part of the kingdom, we have the ability to apply divine mercy to people. God doesn't need our mercy, of course. It's talking about interpersonal relationships. Blessed are the merciful, which means we should be slow to pass judgment and quick to grant the benefit of the doubt, slow to assume wrong motives and quick to assign best intentions. But that's not what we see here in the foes of the king. The religious folks of verse 10 did not demonstrate that at all. Mark points out that Jesus experienced anger and grief. Did you know that? When you go to the Gospel of Mark and read the same account, the evangelist there says that Jesus Christ was angry and he had grief in his heart, not because he was being challenged. That's not the point. His anger and grief was because of the hardness of the hearts of those people who needed salvation. That's what prompted their audacity to question Jesus Christ. And he answers their question with a short parable, fitting for the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, consistent with every false religion and man-made, invented systems of religion. Since then, the self-proclaimed shepherds of Israel had such a low view of human life that they would prefer to save sheep rather than people because sheep were a source of profit for them. People, not so much, unless they were willing to follow their system so that they can lord it over them, then they will be okay. But they display here a very low view of people, a very low view of human life, and Jesus is confronting that, saying, you claim to be religious, but you have such a low view of human life that you are missing the point. You claim to be the shepherds of Israel, but you don't act like a shepherd. You act like the wolf. Christ points out this type of hypocrisy here in his interaction with his foes. They care very little about the predicament of their fellow human being. And they demonstrated this lack of mercy by the type of burdens that they placed on people. We have seen some of that 
here in the Gospel of Matthew, but let's talk a little bit more about them because that's what prompted Jesus Christ's invitation to people in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me. Remember what he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So why is he inviting people to come to him, people who are tired? Come to me, you will find rest because of the burdens of that religious system that the Pharisees were placing on people. And those burdens demonstrated very clearly that they did not care about people because if they did, they wouldn't put those burdens on them. Those burdens of laws and and ridiculous rules, ridiculous inventions that they made really to add to Scripture. Now, and if you think our sophisticated, enlightened, and postmodern culture is any different, think again. In the United States, you will pay a fine of of roughly $100,000 and possibly face jail time if you kill a bald eagle. But it won't cost you anything to murder the baby in your womb. In fact, the federal government will pay for it, and you will be hailed and celebrated for your progressiveness if you do that. The only problem is they don't tell you about the emotional pain and the spiritual scars that that can cause. Now, if we need a clearer definition of God's position about human life, other than Jesus' sheep-shepherd imagery here in verses 11 to 20, 11 to 12 rather, perhaps this will help. Matthew 10, verses 29 to 31. You remember this because we studied this passage not too long ago. Jesus says this, Are two sparrows not sold for an Assyrian? And yet none of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not fear. You are more valuable than a great number of sparrows. We get the point, don't we? People are more important than animals. People are more important than religious traditions. And that is why Jesus took care of the need of that guy on the Sabbath. Because he's Lord of Sabbath. And therefore, when is it time to be Christ-like, church? Anytime. Now, going back to the value of human life, you are not an evolved ape. That's what they teach you in school, that you're an evolved ape. But that's not what the Bible says That's not truth. Rather than resulting from a series of evolutionary accidents, your life bears the image of God, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Even atheists have the image of God. And you have needs that he stands ready to meet. That's the point. You have needs as an image bearer of God. God values your life so much that he stands ready to meet your needs. Jesus Christ has given a perfect illustration of that here. He is ready to meet your needs, whatever they are. Even if those needs stand in the way of religious ceremonies. Think about that. He will meet your needs, not your wants, your needs. Even if those needs stand in the way of religious ceremonies. Because religious ceremonies are way down here below as far as comparison with human life. And according to scripture, people's greatest need is salvation. Is to be born again. Now, don't miss the imagery here. There's a reason why Jesus chose this particular illustration in his short parable, sheep-shepherd imagery here. Jesus' critics, along with everybody else in the world, are the sheep in need of rescuing. Why is that, church? Because we have fallen in a pit called sin. That is why he's using that illustration. We have fallen into a pit called sin. We can't get out of that pit unless we are rescued. Why do we say this? Because the Bible is very clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are in the pit of sin. And the Father spared no effort to save you. How do we know that? Because John 3.16 says very clear, He so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
God considers you worth saving, my friend. And for that reason, church, we as believers should prioritize at any cost saving people from hell before we want to save dolphins from fishing nets or turtles from plastic straws. Do we understand that? Isaiah puts it this way. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That is how much God loved us. Paul puts it this way, Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, we were in that pit. Those of us who are born-again believers in Christ, we didn't earn our way out of that pit. We didn't crawl our way out of that pit. Jesus had to go in there and rescue us from that pit. Otherwise, we would have remained in that pit forever. And the foes of Christ here, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the self-proclaimed pastors and shepherds of Israel were still in that pit thinking that they were out of the pit because of their works and their man-made burdens that they couldn't even keep, Jesus says. They were so wrong. Now, because God did not spare his own son to redeem sinners, church, we should not allow religious traditions to get in the way of our compassion for reaching people. We don't take a day off from being Christ-like. We don't take Sundays off. We don't take the Sabbath off. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he is demonstrating that he is ready 24-7 to come to the rescue. We should do the same. It was motivated by Christ-like love that Amy Carmichael rescued little girls from temple prostitution. She gave her life for that cause. It was motivated by Christ-like kindness that William Carey fought for the end of widow burning in India. He gave his life for that cause. Now, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. The Bible says the author and perfecter of our faith, according to Hebrews 12, 2. Let's see what he did. To prove his point, he healed a man from a non-life-threatening condition on the Jewish day of rest. The epitome of breaking the law according to the Pharisees. He, he did it on purpose to make a point. He violated the Pharisaical rule, which had nothing to do with the divine rule, but he did the work of God. So with that, let me ask you. None of us can perform miracles here. None of us can heal someone miraculously like Christ did. But we can meet needs, can't we? Now, do you know someone who lost a job? Can you cover this month's rent for him or for her? Can you buy groceries? See, that's doing good. That's doing something that is not miraculous, that is within our ability to do. Do you know someone who wants to come to church but doesn't have transportation? Do you know someone who needs a word of encouragement? Do you know perhaps a couple who can use free babysitting so that they could go on a date? Now, this is, not, this is not a plea for free babysitting because we, we don't have a toddler anymore. But I'm saying, can you bless someone? Let's leave the miraculous up to God and let's do what we can to demonstrate Christ-like kindness to people. Sacrifice your day of rest to do good and watch God fill you with the joy of serving, the joy of giving. Now, look at verse 14. The scribes and Pharisees determined that Jesus deserved to die for breaking their silly rule that they invented. And also because they believe his power came from Satan. That's in verse 24 very clearly. They said, well, we need to kill this guy. The problem for them was this. Rome did not allow anybody else to perform capital punishment other than the state, other than Rome. So they had to plot on how to get him crucified Roman style because they couldn't execute anybody according to the law of the land. Let's keep reading here. I want you to see 
that we have an analysis of human hypocrisy here that Matthew gives us and the application of divine mercy. But according to the format of the text here, in order to answer this question, when is it time to be Christ-like or to grant Christ-like compassion and kindness to someone? Point number three is let's look at the appreciation for scriptural clarity. Verses 15 through 21, because that's what Matthew is doing. He is letting us modern-day readers appreciate the clarity of Scripture. Don't you love it when the Bible explains the Bible? Because that's what Matthew is doing here. And he's going to explain what we just read. The fact that the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus Christ. The fact that they, were, they, they had to plan for his crucifixion because they couldn't do it. They had to involve the state, the political power at the time. Now, as... The Lord of the Sabbath, and as one with the Father, Jesus possesses the divine attribute of omniscience. Only God has the divine attribute of omniscience, which means He knows reality. He knows potentiality as well. He knows everything that happened in the past, everything that will happen in the future, everything that would have happened if we did this or that. So that is divine omniscience. And Jesus displays that because He knew exactly what was in their minds. They are thinking, we're going to come up with this wonderful plan. And Jesus already knows. And not only does Jesus already know, but he is aware of the fact that in order for him to accomplish redemption for sinners, he needs to die on a cross by the betrayal of his own people, the Jews. Read chapter 1 of the Gospel of John again, and it will confirm to you that his own people received him not. And they rejected him. And we see the picture of that happening in chapter 12. Now, after he performed more healings, according to what we see here in this scene, Jesus instructed the people not to tell who he was. And again, why in the world would he say that? Why would he do that? See, again, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Again, they're, from that point on, they just thought, well, we need to get Rome involved here in order to crucify him because we are not allowed. In verse 15, Jesus withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. Stop right there. Verse 16, you see, why would he say that? Well, wonder no more. Keep reading. The answer is in the text. You'll be surprised that before you start to speculate as to the reason for something or for Jesus doing something, just keep reading. Because verse 17 says this, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So the reason is to fulfill prophecy. By quoting from the Old Testament, and by the way, this is not a word-for-word quote. This is more of a paraphrase that Matthew has given us. He's explaining to us what that passage is. He's placing that Old Testament passage in the context of a messianic prophecy here. The gospel writer clarifies that Israel's rejection of Christ, represented by the Pharisees here, would cause the gospel to go to the nations. Why do I say that? Because look at verse 18. My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. In other words, because the Pharisees, the self-proclaimed leaders of Israel, are promoting a nationwide rejection of the Messiah, then the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. And my friends, those of us who are Gentiles, who are non-Jews, can thank God for that. So Matthew is explaining Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4, the suffering servant passage. That's how that passage is known, the suffering servant. And by doing so, he provides biblical evidence to the original readers, as well as the current readers, that the opposition to Jesus Christ has been prophesied long ago. 
nothing catches God by surprise. He knows exactly what's happening. He knows exactly what he's doing. And again, don't you love it when the Bible explains the Bible? Scripture here clarifies that nothing ever surprises God. Now, in fact, the Pharisees may have thought that they concocted this brilliant plan to murder the Messiah. See, they're thinking, we got this great plan. But in reality, according to another passage in Isaiah, and that's Isaiah 53, verse 10, it was the Lord who was well pleased to crush him. It was God's plan to destroy Christ in order to raise him up again to have salvation available for you and for me. The Bible says it was pleasing to the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So it's very clear to us here, church, that the foes of the king may have planned started to plot his destruction, but no, God was way ahead of them. It was the Lord's good pleasure to crush Christ, to put him to grief for your behalf and mine. See, even the opponents of the gospel serve God's sovereign purposes when they think they are causing harm. Of course, God will hold each of them accountable. But let me ask you a question here, church. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Before you answer that question, let me give you some hints. Let me read you some Bible verses so that, we, again, we're appreciating the scriptural clarity here. Romans 8.32 says this, He, meaning God, did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him for us all. He did not spare His own Son so that He would spare you and me eternal punishment. Now, whose minds planned the death of Christ and whose hands did the deed? Peter helps us answer that in Acts 2, verse 23. This man, he says in his famous sermon, this man referring to Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men who put him to death. So it was God's predetermined plan that godless men would nail Jesus Christ to a cross. So the question is, who killed Jesus Christ? God did for the purpose of having life available for you and for me. But of course, evil men did the deed. Did Christ resist the Father's plan here, church? Did we see that Christ resisted in any way the Father's predetermined plan? No, because he knew the reason he came. Did he fire back at the Pharisees who wanted him dead and said, oh yeah, you're plotting to kill me? Let me tell you, I can just say the word and you'll be zapped. Is that what he did? No. That, that is why that Old Testament passage applies to him. He will not quarrel nor cry out because he's gentle and humble in heart, the Bible says. Now, he did not fire back at these guys. He simply withdrew from the area and continued his ministry until the appointed time for his crucifixion, which, by the way, church, he endured voluntarily. The father didn't take Jesus Christ kicking and screaming and said, now, you're going to go to the cross now. He went to the cross voluntarily. He says it himself, John 10, verses 17 to 18. For this reason, the father loves me, he says, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, he says. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So church, Jesus Christ endured the agony of the cross for you and for me voluntarily because he knew that that was the redemptive plan for human salvation. Otherwise, we would still be in that pit called sin. Of course, he endured it with agony in his heart, the Bible says. But Hebrews 12, 2 tells us he did it for the joy set before him. 
So therefore, church, according to Matthew, the suffering servant passage reveals much about the character of Christ. He's gentle and humble in heart. He did nothing to defend himself or to uncover the plot, even though he already knew what was going on. He did nothing to uncover the plot against him. Why? Because he had people to reach. He had work to get accomplished. He had work to do. So he said, I'm not going to waste my time. He had plenty of good to accomplish on the Sabbath or on the other days of the week. Why? Because every day is the right day to demonstrate Christ-like kindness. In church, what a precious lesson for us. So, friends, when you face opposition for doing the Lord's work, even from religious people, be of good cheer. Just like the Pharisees did to Jesus, people will criticize you because of your compassion for lost souls. You will be criticized for that. You will be accused of all kinds of things. You will be criticized because you love sinners, just like Jesus did. They will say you're violating some ridiculous set of rules that they invented. They may even plot to take you down, just like they did to Jesus. But what do you do? Pay no attention to that at all. Continue to do what God has called you to do until He calls you home. And that's the lesson we learn from Jesus here. When you face opposition from doing the Lord's work, even from religious people who prioritize religious traditions over human life, over lost souls, continue to do what God has called you to do until He calls you home. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. And we're always looking for people just like you to help join in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.